You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Good evening and welcome to Done By Law on 3CR 855am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. It's 6.01pm and you're here with Ingrid and Beth, broadcasting live from the 3CR studio. We'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're broadcasting, where we are, that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and to pay our respects to their elders past and present. And on this Anzac Day, we also acknowledge the frontier wars fought in by our First Peoples long before the start of the First World War, when their shores were invaded. Tonight we are looking at the Anzac legend and its 21st century legacy, a century during which Australia has continued to participate in foreign conflicts with allegations of serious war crimes committed against civilians by Australian troops in Afghanistan and where violations of the laws of war often occur without scrutiny or redress in domestic or international systems. We're fortunate to be joined by Dr Carolyn Holbrook a senior lecturer in the Contemporary Histories Research Group at Deakin University and the Director of Australian Policy and History. Her latest book, Lessons from History, Leading Historians Tackle Australia's Greatest Challenges, was published in July 2022. She is writing a history of Australians' attitudes towards their federal system of government and co-authoring with Professor James Walter, A History of Policymaking in Australia. Carolyn is also the author of the award-winning book, Anzac, The Unauthorised Biography, about the history of how Australians have remembered the First World War and co-edited The Great War, Aftermath and Commemoration. We'll then speak with Professor Felicity Gary KC, an International King's Council at Libertas Chambers, London and Crockett Chambers, Melbourne, largely defending in serious and complex criminal trials and appeals, often with an international element. Felicity is admitted to the list of counsel for the International Criminal Court and the Kosovo Specialist Chambers in The Hague and in England and Wales and in Australia and has had ad hoc admission in Hong Kong and Gibraltar. Felicity is an honorary professor at Salford University in the School of Health and Society where her research focus is on autism and criminal law, FGM law and child rights. She's also a Professor of Legal Practice at Deakin University, where she is Unit Chair for Contemporary International Legal Challenges. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. Now, Carolyn, for our listeners who might not be aware, what is the Anzac story? Yeah, so the Anzac legend or the Anzac myth, as it's commonly known, is something that really grew out of Australians service in the First World War. So Australia in the early 1900s was a part of the British Empire. So if the British Empire went to war, 
it meant that fairly automatically or the expectation of the bulk of the public was that Australia uh, Australia would also go to war. Mm. So our first significant action was in um, Gallipoli, which is a fairly remote uh, peninsula in Turkey. So Australian troops on the 25th of April 1915, Australian troops landed at Gallipoli and they climbed the cliffs and they were, it was their first significant action in the First World War. And the, and the first day in the campaign itself never went very well. Um, there was actually hope that on, on the first day, Australians would sort of fight along with the rest of the uh, British troops and actually make their way towards Constantinople. That was the general strategic goal. Mm-hmm. But we barely managed to land on the shore and, and it was it was such a disaster really that the commanders even um, asked back to headquarters whether they should abandon it and, 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 um, and leave the peninsula. And the whole campaign dragged on for about eight months and about 8,000 Australian soldiers were killed uh, before we uh, evacuated and the whole thing was cancelled. So it was a failure of a campaign. Uh, but for some reason, I'll talk about those reasons, um, just the fact that Australians had participated in this sort of military uh, campaign with the British forces was enough to sort of spawn this thing that became known as the ANZAC legend. Mm. And ANZAC is an, is an acronym which means Australia and New Zealand Army Corps. So that's where the name ANZAC comes from. But because um, at the time of the Gallipoli campaign, nearly 1900s, there was this kind of idea that nations were made in war and Australians sort of felt this, this kind of spurious racial ideology was around at the time as well. And Australians kind of felt anxious that we weren't quite good enough sort of British stock because of our convict origins. So um, if, you know, if nations were made in war and men proved their manhood in war, then the fact that we'd sort of fought valiantly alongside the British forces was enough to sort of prove our nationhood. So they, they, therefore you get this idea of the Anzac legend that um, our, our forces had, had uh, proved themselves to be good warriors and we'd sort of forged our nationhood at Gallipoli. So even though this campaign was ultimately unsuccessful, it's those sorts of elements of, you know, a, a sort of baptism by fire and becoming a real Australian nation, that's what's translated into this myth that's pervaded in, into modern times. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, very much so. And it's, so it's, it's sort of got some almost like pagan kind of definitely quasi-religious elements, the idea of sacrificing your young warriors mm. on the battlefield and the idea of spilling the nation's blood in order to become a nation. Mm. So, And then that sort of over the course of the war and during the interwar years, it developed these other aspects, this idea, because the Australians did... Uh, acquit themselves very well during the war. They turned out to be one of the sort of crack British um, fighting units. So this idea that that we were very good soldiers, and it was the classic case of the of the child rebelling against the parent, but at the same time very much wanting the approval of of the parent mm. at, at the risk of a sort of bit of a tragic psychological metaphor. But I think there's something kind of really true in that. So Australians were sort of um, compared, were, were in the company of Britons and able to compare themselves to Britons. So they worked out some things that they were sort of very good soldiers, they were um, less deferential, they were more independently minded, they were sort of larrikin-like, laconic, they valued this code of mateship very highly. So these are the kind of attributes of this Anzac legend. 
that developed over the interwar years. Uh, and during those years, we get Anzac Day becomes a public holiday in all the states in the 1920s. And you get this kind of ritual of Anzac Day um, that starts with the dawn service and then in the morning there's the march mm-hmm. where all the old soldier civilians important to remember we didn't have conscription so these these were civilians who sort of turned into soldiers during the war Uh, and so this sort of um, provided a space for people to grieve because it was 60,000 men killed out of a population of less less than 5 million so it was a very major trauma for for a young nation Mm. 150,000 officially wounded and obviously many many more than that uh, so it was a it was a way for people to grieve, but also it was always from the beginning wrapped up with this sort of Australian nationalism, and that's where it's different from what was happening in places like Britain, mm-hmm. where they focused on Armistice Day and or Remembrance Day as it is now. So it was much more about grief and idea that the war had been sort of tragic and, and, and futile in some ways, but Australians tended not to feel like that. It always seemed to have more of a purpose to Australia because of this kind of nation-making role that the war had served for Australians. Now, Carolyn, you've researched and written extensively on this topic, and you've argued that the Anzac legend that you've just described has blinded Australians to some uncomfortable truths around its own modern-day um, war atrocities. What do you mean by this? So whenever, I think, whenever um, an idea has, has something of the sacred around it, and if, if you think of things like Christmas and Easter have been so commercialised now that for a lot of people they forget what they were originally supposed to be about mm-hmm. and people don't really question their commercialisation. But the Anzac legend, well, in that interwar period, it was it had this sort of quasi-religious, um, element to it, and and the soldiers were, um, were were highly admired, like quasi kind of religious figures almost in a way. And then that sort of Anzac status began to diminish after the Second World War, mm-hmm. um, with the rise of new generations of Australians who began to question those values, those those sort of Anzac values that link to empire, that idea of, of manhood, that men were made in war, and all the sort of racist, chauvinistic values that went with that generation of Australians. Those ideas were sort of ubiquitous back then. So young people began to challenge those ideas, and so the Anzacs were sort of taken off their pedestal. And then you get the Vietnam War, where people start to think that commemorating war is the same as glorifying war. So it looked like Anzac would sort of die out along with the last of the old diggers. Mm. This was around the the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. But then against all these expectations, Anzac commemoration makes this huge comeback. Uh, Begins in the 1980s with Peter Weir's Weir's film Gallipoli, which was incredibly successful and and popular. Mm -hmm. And that's very much wrapped up in the idea of an Australian nationhood being born at Gallipoli. Um, But it sort of reinvented the Anzac legend because that old version of Anzac legend that was more kind of militaristic was very out of favour after the Vietnam War. And, and, and all the social change. So Anzac becomes popular again from the 1980s, but it's a new version of Anzac and it's sort of been tra- um, drained of its militarism. If you picture the final frame of that film Gallipoli, um, Archie 
is not even carrying his weapon, Archie, the blonde one, Mark Lee. Mm -hmm. He's running across, he drops his rifle and he's got his arms outstretched like Jesus on the cross, I'm sure Peter Weir is alluding to. And his chest is sort of ripped open by the the, um, Turkish machine gun bullets. So he's sacrificed for Australian nationhood. So you get this sort of new, friendlier, softer um, version of the Anzac legend coming back from the 80s and the 90s. And then the politicians start to notice that the Anzac legend is becoming more popular again among the public. So the politicians sort of jump on board. Mm -hmm. And Bob Hawke went over to Gallipoli in 1990 for the 75th anniversary of the Gallipoli landing. He was the first Prime Minister to go over there for for the Anzac Day service. Mm -hmm. And that was a great success. And then you get all the young backpackers starting to come. Mm -hmm. And when Howard, John Howard, was Prime Minister, he really sort of fixed on this. He went over to Gallipoli a couple of times when he was Prime Minister, made moving speeches. Um, Tens of thousands of backpackers were coming. And And so the status of these Anzacs um, as revered Australian heroes starts to sort of reappear. They're sort of going back up to the pedestal again. So that's the sort of trend helped by politicians pushing this um, that has happened since the 1990s. So the point is when you get um, this sort of reverence surrounding anything, whether it's the Anzacs or anything else, then if you question it, and when ANZAC is so associated with these sort of Australian values, mm. um, this sacred sense of Australianness, if you question it, then you're um, at risk of being accused of being un-Australian or disloyal. Like, how dare you sort of question the ANZACs? Mm. So politicians who are very clever, like John Howard, they manage to sort of fuse the ANZAC legend, this sort of sepia-toned version of the Australian military, they fuse that with contemporary campaigns, so with the soldiers who are going to Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, some of these questions about these wars, these contemporary wars, are quite political, but if you manage to weld them to this um, this legend that's above politics, then you could, it becomes like a Trojan horse for doing fairly political things in the present. Yeah. Yes. And Carolyn, the Anzac legend really focuses on um, what befell the soldiers in a sense rather than what befell the civilian population. Um, And when we're linking that back to, you know, recent campaigns such as the one in Afghanistan, there's been a lot of media lately around alleged war crimes committed by Australia's defence forces in Afghanistan. And this has in fact been described by some as a continuity rather than a rupture with our military past. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because all these kinds of maybe some bad behaviours on the part of um, the original Anzacs from the First World War, they're sort of wrapped up in things like larrikinism and and blokiness and humour and that kind of thing, aren't they? Mm. I think so. um, There's... Um, a, a very good historian called Peter Stanley did write a book a few years ago called um, Bad uh, Bad Characters, mm-hmm. and that was about the fact that Australia, the Australian soldiers in the First World War, had very high rates of going um, missing um, and very high sort of um, disciplinary problems. Um, but again, I think that can sort of get excused in that sort of laughed off and the Australians were larrikins and independently minded. Um, there are, there is evidence 
of um, Australians doing things like shooting prisoners of war. There's certainly evidence of that in the First World War. I've not ever heard anything about the Australian soldiers um, behaving badly towards civilians in the First World War. Because of the nature of that warfare, there was more of a separation between the soldiers and the civilian population. Uh, so, but in terms of the sort of the, the bloatiness and stuff, then in some ways I think that can provide a shield for the behaviour of the soldiers I'm talking about now in these contemporary wars. And if we're talking about some of these more recent wars and the, and the findings of the Brereton Report, some of those soldiers who've, uh, who have been um, singled out for some of their um, poor behaviour, um, I know some of those people were um, great admirers of the original Anzacs and been quite prominent in saying that they had posters of the Anzacs on the bedroom wall and they um, they regarded these men as, as heroes, etc. So this kind of warrior cult and Anzac cult where these people... Um, maybe buy into the mythology and think that it gives them a sort of free pass in terms of some of their behaviour. Like, yeah, you sort of you draw a blind down of what happens on the battlefield today is on the battlefield. Mm. Um, that's a really, really worrying strain, I think. And I think even some of the soldiers themselves who gave evidence to the um, Brereton report, some of the special forces have actually said that they identified there was this sort of um, unhinged sort of warrior strain within the special forces and, and some of the soldiers looked at that and saw that it was very worrying because it kind of gives a license for um, immoral behaviour and that's, uh, that's exactly what um, seems to have happened, has allegedly happened. That's where um, the Anzac legend um, can be used for nefarious and insidious purposes. Mm. And Carolyn, what's the importance in your view of recognising a, a, a more warts and all history of the conduct of hostilities by Australian troops when we're looking at modern day Australia? I mean, who's left out of the narrative when we're focusing on stories of the heroism and the bravery and the gallantry of Australian forces as something that's foundational to our history as a nation? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it leaves out so many people because, I mean, among the mix of soldiers who fight in the First World War, you might, in any war, you might get people, well, particularly in a war like the First World War where there was a mass army full, full of um, volunteers, yeah, you might get some soldiers who have what you might be able to call a good war, um, who thrive in that kind of environment despite the awful nature of it. And then you get um, soldiers who have a terrible war who find that they don't cope at all in that kind of environment. But, I mean, something like the First World War and the Anzac legend that is so foundational in Australia, that was a very old-fashioned kind of war where there was a big division between um, the soldiers and the civilian population. And it just doesn't carry through to the way that a lot of wars are fought these days where there is... Um, civilian populations that um, are suffering by the actions of the military and um, there's no room for them in the traditional version of the Anzac legend. And so if we look at contemporary people, but also I think it's important to register um, the wars that happened before 1915, um, thinking now of the frontier wars. And so the, the wars that we're finding out so much more about that were fought between Indigenous people and the British Europeans when they arrived here, um, there's no room for that kind of conflict either in this traditional version of the Anzac legend 
that's based on the, this sort of more imperial mindset, I guess, where um, a force goes over and fights in a foreign country. Um, so um, all kinds of people, whether it's um, a regular kind of warfare like that was fought on the Australian frontier in the in the 1718 and even into the um, 1900s, all these more contemporary wars uh, where civilian populations are suffering dreadfully um, and yet um, you never hear about it because it doesn't sort of um, fit into this sort of sepia-toned um, uh, traditional Anzac legend. Mm. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your great expertise in this area. Uh, we're going to go to a break now and then we're going to chat to Felicity Gary KC about the international law aspects of um, conflicts as they are today in the 21st century um, in the backdrop of what we've been discussing with you, Carolyn. So thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now when I was a young man, I carried my pack And I lived the free life of a rover From the Murray's green basin to the dusty outback I waltzed my Matilda all over Then in 1915, my country said son it's time to stop rambling, there's work to be done. So they gave me a tin hat, and they gave me a gun. And they sent me away to the war. And the band played waltzing Matilda, as the ship pulled away from the quay. And amid all the tears, flag waving and cheers, we sailed off for Gallipoli. Well, I remember that terrible day when our blood stained the sand and the water, and how in that hell that they called Souvla Bay. We were butchered like lambs of the slaughter. Johnny Turk, he was ready, oh, he primed himself well. He rained us with bullets, and he showered us with shell. And in five minutes flat, we were all blown to hell. Nearly blew us back home to Australia. And the band played waltzing Matilda When we stopped to bury our sleigh And we buried ours And the Turks buried theirs And it started all over again Those who were living just tried to survive in that mad world of blood, death and fire And for ten weary weeks I kept myself alive Though around me the corpses piled higher Then a big turkey shell knocked me arse overhead And when I awoke in my hospital bed and 
saw what it had done, and I wished I were dead. Never knew there were worse things than dying. For no more I'll go waltzing, Matilda, all around the green bush far and near. For to hump tent and pegs. A man needs both legs. No more waltzing, Matilda, for me. They collected the wounded, the crippled, the maimed, and they shipped us back home to Australia. The armless, the legless, the blind, the insane. Those proud, wounded heroes of Sula, and when the ship pulled into Circular Key, I looked at the place where my legs used to be, and thanked Christ there was no one there waiting for me to grieve and to mourn and to pity. The band played waltzing Matilda as they carried us down the gangway, but nobody cheered. They just stood there and stared. Then they turned all their faces away. So now every April. Sit on my porch, and I watch the parade pass before me. I see my old comrades how proudly they march, renewing their dreams of past glory. I see the old men, all tired, stiff and sore, the weary old heroes. Of a forgotten war, and the young people ask, "What are they marching for?" And I ask myself the same question. And the band plays waltzing tunes, and the old men still answer the call. But year after year. Numbers get fewer. Someday no one will march there at all. Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda, who'll come waltzing Matilda with me? And their ghosts may be heard. They march by the billabong. Who'll come a-waltzing, Matilda, with me? And that track was, of course, the very famous, and the band played Waltzing Matilda, originally by Eric Bogle, and that version was by Liam Clancy. We're now going to um, chat to... Professor Felicity Gary Casey about the international law aspects of the Anzac legend and conflicts in the 21st century. Felicity, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. 
Hello, um, we're very glad you're able to join us all the way from London. Thank you for lending your international um, law expertise to this very important topic. Um, we've heard from Dr. Carolyn Holbrook about the Anzac legend and its co-option by present-day governments in entering into 21st century conflicts. Um, and since World War One, the United Nations has created, including in the UN Charter, a prohibition on the use of force by nations, that is, not starting wars of aggression, and also the regulation of the conduct of hostilities through um, treaties such as the Geneva Conventions. Uh, Felicity, why did the international community see a need to regulate the use of force by nations as well as the conduct of warfare in this way? Oh, yeah, look... Um we know, of course, that Anzac Day comes from the First World War, where we tried to say, well, that was the war to end all wars. And not terribly long afterwards, of course, we had the Second World War. So post the Second World War, what states did was come together and create a legal framework in the hope that, that we can work towards a world where there are no wars, where people don't go to war, or at least we have some rules about when they happen. And... Um, very limited circumstances in which a war or a conflict might be justified in the context of threats to peace. Um, and so what we're trying to do post-1945 is resolve international disputes through law and not war. So we have an international court of justice that deals with disputes between states and we have an international criminal court that deals with behaviour by individuals um, in conflict zones. So what we're really trying to do is move away from war. Um, and we could have a long conversation about whether that's being achieved or achievable. But it's a, a laudable goal by states post the Second World War to try and achieve a world without aggression and without the use of force and without the sort of traumatising situation, without asking people to go into those traumatising situations. Now, Felicity, you've mentioned the International Criminal Court. Um, what is a war crime and how is it usually prosecuted? Is it typically prosecuted through international bodies such as the ICC or is it prosecuted domestically by individual nations? Well, um, the legal framework is such that the, um, the ICC is there if the country itself um, is not willing or able to prosecute someone who may have committed a war crime. So in Australia, we have what's called universal jurisdiction. That means Australian courts can deal with war crimes committed by Australian people, wherever they're committed. So we actually have the power to do that within Australia. Um, and obviously, we're seeing some of those prosecutions coming through now as part of the Burriton Report. If a country, for whatever reason, if a state, for whatever reason, is not willing or able to do that themselves, then those cases might be tried in an ad hoc tribunal. We've set them up in Cambodia, um, the tribunal for the events in the former Yugoslavia, the Rwanda tribunal. But we do have the International Criminal Court that can deal with situations of conflict that occur around the world. And... Um, identify those individuals who uh, may have committed a war crime. And those crimes can include a range of acts that are pretty extreme. So um, you're, you're thinking about um, widespread attacks on civilians, um, enslavement, 
murder outside the rules of engagement, mass systemic rape, um, persecution, inhumane acts, the sort of extreme conduct that is well outside the rules of engagement and war, the sort of extreme conduct that we would all abhor, whoever's carrying it out, whether it's our own troops or troops in, in another jurisdiction or from another jurisdiction. So these are the types of terrible things that people do individually or in groups that can be tried within Australia or at the International Criminal Court, depending on what the situation is, where it hails from and what the frameworks are in those particular jurisdictions. And Felicity, what protections exist in wartime for groups that have traditionally been considered vulnerable in conflict, such as women and children, civilians? Well, that's what we have what's called humanitarian law for. So there are um, a range of rules, if you like, that apply in armed conflict, restricting the actions of warring parties, supposedly providing protection and humane treatment of the people who are not taking part in war or can no longer take part. So the people who are not the soldiers, if you like. Um, you, you rather hope that, that civilians are not targeted, but experience shows that particularly women and girls, suffer terrible atrocities um, during conflict, whether that's international armed conflict or non-international armed conflict, so it could be within a, within a particular state. Um, women suffer really appalling attacks in particular. So um, it's a way of creating a framework within which those wars that might be justified according to the UN Charter and decisions at that level, um, to have some rules around how those wars take place and to have some accountability if those rules are not adhered to. So, in principle, the idea of having a framework is meant to deter that sort of behaviour. doesn't always do that, therefore you might have to have a prosecution of some type um, or indeed a, a set up a tribunal to deal with acts of aggression and behaviours of um, soldiers on the ground. So um, the protections are there in terms of a framework, and if every state in the world falls into this framework, the legal frameworks that we have internationally and domestically, then the idea is that we move away from war and move away from the sort of situation that the Anzac face. And Felicity, when we're talking about um, ending war or coming to the end of a conflict situation, you've argued strongly that peace negotiations following conflict, such as the conflict um, in Afghanistan, should safeguard women's rights or, or else talk of peace will be empty. Why is that? Yeah, absolutely. I feel very strongly about that. My research, certainly at Deakin University, as well as my practical experience, demonstrates that... Um, Often women are not at the table for a start, so where there are peace negotiations, those persons who turn up to do the negotiation are often not women. And secondly, women's issues are often not on the table. Um, and may, that may, those two may well be linked, that the people attempting to do the peace negotiations don't understand the women's issues. So, look, it's a common problem. You can think about it in your own circumstances, the sea level, there are very few women. As a barrister, for example, there are very few women doing homicide and war crimes, as I do. So if you think about that at the level of 
negotiating wars and peace and security of people and nation states, um, you can very your listeners can very very quickly think of all those photographs of heads of states or negotiating parties that just don't include women. And if we are going to move away from a world of of conflict and war, then we need to understand all the issues that give rise to those conflicts or happen during those conflicts. And that requires, if you like, a diverse group of people to come up with sensible solutions. And that has to include women as actors in those negotiations and where women's issues are understood. And what are the barriers yeah, to that, absolutely. Felicity? I mean, in Afghanistan, for example, what what were the barriers in involving women in peace talks and ensuring that um, those issues that were well-known um, issues under the Taliban, for example, came front and centre in peace negotiations? Well, look, there was a burgeoning peace negotiation just before Australia's withdrawal from Afghanistan. And there was quite a lot of work done by the Australian Senate calling for evidence to be given. I certainly gave evidence with a group of women researchers um, at that, that um, it really didn't have the opportunity to get off the ground before withdrawal occurred. And we know um, how uh, women have been affected since, who were affected at the time, and a lot of women simply chose to escape for understandable reasons. So on my part, you know, the idea that we can... Um, you know, talk to terrorists or talk to those that we would otherwise be in conflict, including involving women in those conversations. That really is the only way in which we are going to move towards a world where there is no conflict. And it isn't sort of woolly and impossible. You know, we can see how um, the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland led to a uh, much more peaceful situation. We can see examples around the world where peace and security is negotiated at a very high level. So Afghanistan is, of course, a complex problem that's gone on for many centuries, and we're going to have to deal with the fallout of the behaviour of soldiers during that conflict zone, the the current uh, people in power in Afghanistan, the situation for the civilians on the ground. But just as war is hard, so is negotiating peace and security. And certainly on my part, that has to involve women um, being involved in the conversations that lead to states understanding the post-1945 framework and why it is that we're trying to move to law and not war. It's not utopian. It's just we have to work very, very hard to live in a world without conflict. And Felicity, finally, in moving towards a world that prioritises law over war, to what extent do we need to recognise that war crimes are frequently committed by armed forces in all conflicts, whether it's by our own troops or by foreign troops, in order to pave the way for the recovery of civilians and ensure a path to peace for those who've lived through these conflicts? Oh, look, we, we have to recognise that crimes are committed um, and we have to find ways to recognise Sometimes those are committed by traumatised people and sometimes they are committed in, in wicked ways. Human beings are messy. They're not all wicked, but they're often messy. And that can include during wartime. And, you know, properly trained soldiers know the rules. It's not funny to break them. Somebody is always harmed. And therefore, we have to have frameworks so that 
soldiers know how to behave. And if they're not able to do that, but those in command can remove those soldiers from their position and not facilitate um, the sorts of atrocities that we can read about that are committed by soldiers. And, and of course, we have to recognise that that can occur from any military force from any state. We're none of us immune from, if you like, bad behaviour in war. I don't know that I would use the word frequently that you did. I don't know what the data is on how frequent it is that Australian soldiers depart, depart from the rules of war, but maybe that's what we're going to discover as prosecutions come about within Australia as a result of the Burrito report and other investigations. You know, sometimes we have to face up to the the good and the brave, as well as the, the bad and the despotic. And that, it seems to me, is still part of the learning experience we've had since time immemorial, really, moving through centuries of conflict and war and trying to find another more decent way to live. Thank you, Felicity. That's a sobering reminder of, of the ways in which we need to move um, towards law over war. Um, Felicity, that's all we have time for tonight. Thank you so much for joining us as our guest uh, and for sharing your expertise in international law on this area. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Done By Law on 3CR 855 AM, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. Um, we're very grateful to have been joined today by Dr Carolyn Holbrook and Professor Felicity Gary Casey talking about the Anzac legend. Um, stay tuned for Voices of West Papua coming up next. Of course, as of today's date, the 25th of April 2023, the allegations of war crimes in relation to um, Australia's special forces in Afghanistan have not been proven. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.